43% of the Bible is narrative. Tons and tons of stories. The grand narrative of the Bible is probably one of the most commonly known things in Christianity, at least when described as creation, fall, redemption, restoration. But there's much more to a grand narrative. Let's compare the Bible to a building for a moment. The narrative is the architecture of the story, similar to the building's design. The story is the proper sequencing of events, like taking a tour of the building. The plot is the sum of the events, but maybe not in order, uh, and this is often considered synonymous with the narrative, but it's like the building itself. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. In today's episode, we'll look at the Bible's use of narratives, characters, and typescenes. I used to ask my classes, what do you think of this quote? God made people because he loves stories. I think he must love stories because of how much he employs them and how many he employs in the scriptures. And then he made us humans obviously in love with stories. We write and we read them, we film and we watch them. Stories are powerful. And good story plots have characters placed in settings, and then something unexpected happens, and then there's usually a conflict, and then resolution, and then growth in the character or characters. So we have these sort of things in scripture. What should we do with them? Sean McEvenue writes, The very first and only really rigid rule in literary theory is that text must be read from beginning to end. The meaning of a word is not determined by its definition, but by its context. So also, a single story's meaning is only determined by the relationship of all its elements to the whole text. N.T. Wright tells us stories and plots are the crucial agents that invest events with meaning. The way the bare facts are described, the point at which the tension or climax occurs, the selection and arrangement of parts, these all indicate the meaning which the events are believed to possess, and thus what the author means to communicate by telling them to the reader. So all of our high school English courses are going to come in handy when reading narrative portions of scripture. It is way too common in Christianity to not follow what Sean is saying about reading the whole story or what N.T. is saying about the arrangement of a piece. What happens if you leave out part of the story when interpreting the smaller snippet? You can definitely get the meaning wrong. Wouldn't the same thing happen with a TV show? What if you watched just one episode all by itself, right from the middle of a season in the middle of a series, and you didn't understand the plot of what was going on or who the characters were or what the setting was? Could you misread something? For example, the TV show The Office. If you only watched the episode about Scott's Tots, where a local businessman promises an entire class of kindergartners that when they're ready for college, he'll pay for it all. He wrongly assumed that he'd be a billionaire by the time that they were old enough, and so those kids lived their whole life thinking they had free college. He goes to their school, their senior year, and tells them he cannot send them to college, but that he does have some free laptop batteries for them all. 
This businessman comes across as cold and evil for doing such a thing. But that's only if you watch the one episode. In the larger picture, we know that that man is Michael Scott. And he's just an ignorant guy who does stupid stuff all the time. And it's usually harmless and usually funny. But this was an isolated event where his way of doing things hurt people. And he had to choose to grow from it or let it define him. If you've been watching the episodes and seasons prior, you've grown to love Michael, and so you watch Scott's tots, and you're hurting for him while you also hurt for the kids. Where just an isolated episode, Michael just looks like the absolute worst. Context matters. And that's on a TV show that has very little seasonal storylines. The Bible Project highlights in one of their videos how this is done all the time with the story of Gideon when he lays out the fleece to see if God will save Israel. If you cherry pick that one episode, you might hear sermons about how this is a good idea and very faithful to trying to discover God's will. However, if you read the episodes leading up to this event, you know that God already promised uh, this to Gideon and Gideon's just being an untrustful brat here. Thinking of your Bible as episodic in the age of binging TV is most helpful. You don't want to miss the build-up or the payoff, right? One year I skipped the episode of Sherlock that looked like from the previews to be discon- a disconnected timepiece, but I recently rewatched the series and decided to watch that episode, and it was very much adding to the season story, and I had missed it prior. That can happen with the Bible, too. Alright, sometimes I like to watch crime shows, sometimes superhero shows, sometimes fixer-upper shows, or whatever. They're not all the same, and they have to be watched differently. Just like genres, we have to be aware of different types of narratives and what to watch for. These are best spelled out in Leland Riken's book, How to Read the Bible as Literature. We're going to find some heroic narratives. Hero stories are built around the life and exploits of a protagonist. Heroes have to experience conflicts in their community, and then they're able to act for good on behalf of the people. Usually, heroes are exemplary in some way, though they aren't wholly good. Only Jesus is wholly good. Some of the most foolish misreadings of the Bible that I've encountered have come from a misguided assumption that we're intended to approve of the behavior of biblical heroes in virtually every episode of their lives. No, these people are deeply flawed. They are... Mm, like they're not moral um, and these are not fables representing wholesomeness. These are messy people that do a lot of bad and sometimes they do something good. A lot of examples in Genesis, in Judges, and in Kings of this type of narrative. Then we have epic narratives. This is the grand scale hero story. Epics have huge scopes. They're the story of all things. They cover the entire age or destiny of a whole people. This is like the Avengers. Uh, Common epic motifs are kingdom, conquest, warfare, dominion. And there's usually some supernatural characters that present themselves as allies or obstacles to the hero in an epic. But there's always a unifying hero. And the structure of the story is around this epic feat by this centralized hero. So think in Lord of the Rings, it's Frodo to Mordor. In the Bible, you'll see this in Exodus, Joshua, the stories of David. You'll see them in uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph in Genesis. And you'll even see this a bit in Revelation. Then we have comedies. Comedies are stories with happy endings, 
but not happy middles. It's usually a U-shaped story that begins with things being good, and then it descends into tragedy, and then it reverts back to a happy ending. So comedies are like ascent stories where the protagonist needs to climb, overcome challenges, and become transformed. The message to the reader is that they ought to become like the protagonist. Um, we're asked what's valuable in the world, what's worth the struggle, what kind of people win. An example of this is the Joseph story in Genesis. At first, Joseph's a brat, and then his brothers abuse him. And then because of his integrity, once placed in slavery, he rises to a place of influence where he can later save his undeserving brothers. It's a U-shaped story. Comedy is the dominant narrative form in the Bible and in the gospel itself. The Bible is a comedy from beginning to end. It begins with a perfect world. It descends into total misery. And then there's this fallen history. And then it ends with a new world of total happiness and God's victory over evil. Occasionally, you'll see a tragedy, which tragedies have an honored position in uh, literature generally, but they don't exist very much in the Bible. Tragedies are just descent stories where the protagonist is set up well, but due to character flaws or bad choices, they just self-destruct. And so then the message to the reader is you want to avoid being like this protagonist. Um, learn from what ruined them. We're asked what's worth the effort to avoid, what kind of people lose. I think the story of King Saul is a good example of this. Saul is tall and handsome and a go-getter, but then he's prideful and he thinks he knows better than everyone else, and he's unable to recognize his own mistakes, and he can't take criticism, and he ends up losing his throne and his life. Tragedy. When Aristotle described what causes the downfall of a protagonist in a tragedy, he called it hamartia, um, which is translated as sin in the New Testament. It literally means missing the mark. Aristotle described tragedies as being self-inflicted. So the hero is responsible for the fall. They're also deserving of the fall. And the Bible being a book concerned with sin and judgment, um, you, you would think that we could expect there to be a lot of tragedy, but almost every tragedy in the Bible gets hijacked by the power of God to redeem, which creates a comedy. I love that. All right, those are the different types of narratives you might find. So now let's talk about characters. J.M. McCracken said, characters are something that the biblical authors tend to speak with rather than about. Have you noticed that? The Bible's often showing instead of telling. Unlike much of our modern storytelling with great exposition on character backgrounds to make them relatable, the Bible doesn't give a lot of details about these people. So two things we should look out for here to help our Bible reading. First is direct characterization. The story tells you about the character in straightforward detail, but this is super rare in the Bible. But when you find it, it's going to feel comfortable to you as a modern reader. The other is indirect characterization, and that's where the story shows you who the character is within the context of the story itself. Adele Berlin explains the differences as being similar to realism and impressionism in visual art. And I think that's a really great example. 
Modern realism uses precise strokes in its aim to convey near photorealistic objectivity, but impressionism is the way the artist highlights these different aesthetic values within the composition, and it prioritizes the, the, br the brush strokes being more free form, and so it, it feels like something rather than it looks exactly like something. So here, realism is our modern storytelling, and impressionism is the biblical storytelling. So the effects of this. First, when the Bible does describe specific details about a character, it's going to be really important. Think of the left-handedness of Ehud and Judges. Unlike modern storytelling that give you tons and tons of detail about the character, and then much of it doesn't ever come into play, except for maybe you identifying with the character, uh, the Bible just doesn't give you many details. However, all the empty spaces leave us the desire to fill in the blanks. And Berlin tells us the suggestion of a thing may be more convincing than a detailed portrayal. This is due to the tendency of our brains to project meaning onto images in order to complete our expectations. We see what we expect to see and the surrounding information guides our perception. This is why we fill in a particularly drawn figure to conform to our expectations. And in some cases, too much information may destroy the image. The trick from the artist's point of view is how much detail to include and how much to omit. This is a good corrective for those who wish Bible stories to provide more concrete details, but this is precisely its narrative technique. The gaps left in all biblical narratives are intentional, so that with a few deft strokes, the biblical author engages the imagination of the reader to construct a picture that is more real than if he had filled in David or Absalom or Joseph's portrait with more detail. Minimal representation can give maximal illusion. Of course, this leads to dozens of details that we think are biblical facts, when they're not facts at all. For example, the Christmas story is told every year by reading, uh, by doing plays, by filming movies, etc. And in order to make it a full story, a lot of the blanks have been filled in. In the Christmas story, we believe Mary rode on a donkey to Bethlehem, and that she and Joseph were denied a room in an inn there. And they were desperate for a place to have the child, so they went to a barn or a cave instead. And a star hovered over it that place at night when Jesus was born and the three wise men visited. But none of those details are provided in the biblical account. We filled them in. Now, in one sense, we're supposed to do this when we read. In another sense, we weren't supposed to commercialize the gaps as truth. And here's another side effect. Because there is minimal exposition, we're often left wondering why the characters are making the choices they're making because we aren't privy to their thought tracks. This, too, is strategic by the authors. Mir Sternberg writes, Our puzzlement is an imitation of our real position in life. It exposes our ignorance about the meaning of history of our, or our lives. Biblical stories imitate our real-life conditions of inference, as we, too, are daily surrounded by ambiguities, baffled and misled by appearance, reduced to piecing fragments together by the trial and error of interpretation, and we're often left in the dark about the meaning of our lives to the very end. Making sense of biblical stories is to gain sense of being human. So just like I have no idea why a co-worker is acting the way they are on any given day, I have no idea why David thinks it's a good idea to kill Uriah and steal his wife. 
Others have no idea why I do what I do. This is part of being human and living in community. So this is what we're going to find when we read scripture. Now, what about the main character? It's God. God has to be somewhere in every story, right? Sometimes God's in the story like an interventionist. He's very hands-on in Genesis 1 through 11. And he's hands-on again in like the book of Numbers. Most of the time, though, God is acting as a supervisor. Really good examples are Genesis 37 to 50 in Joseph's life, or um, most of the time in David's life, the story of Esther, Ruth. Those are really good examples of God being a supervisor. And despite his often supervisor position, we learn about him as he reveals his character. I think one of the fundamental purposes of the Bible is to reveal God's character and reveal God's purpose so that we trust him more and more. So remember, watch for God in your plain reading. Finally, all these characters have to be set up somewhere, and this is called the type scene. In the Bible, places are real locations. I've been to many of them. You can go and see um, these historic places. You can see their scale. You can taste the food. You can smell the plants. You can uh, feel the bodies of water. It all happened on our earth, not that long ago, all things relative. However, in the Bible, places are not only real locations, but they're also loaded with meaning. The meaning is based upon what has happened there in the episodes leading up to your episode. And as you get to new episodes, you can apply the meaning of those settings back to the episodes that you've already read. This works in modern storytelling too. If the setting's in Las Vegas, you anticipate bright lights and gambling. If the setting is Los Angeles, movie stars and beaches. If the setting's Washington, D.C., you might expect suits and power politics. These type scenes have gained character because of the patterns of the characters that have stories there. And often, the type scenes in the Bible work the same way. They prepare us for what is to happen. In Genesis 2, the land is dry and barren, and then water is brought up to, the gar- to water the garden. It's God giving life. So when Hagar is in the desert with Ishmael and they find a well, we're to expect it's God giving life. There are tons of type scenes in the Bible. Think about what happens every time a man meets a woman at a well. What about when a character passes through water? We also associate characters with certain settings. If I say Ruth, you think Moab, a Bethlehem farm, or Boaz threshing floor, but probably nothing else. If I say David, you picture green pastures, a battlefield, or a palace. If I say John the Baptist, you picture dry wilderness, the Jordan River, or prison. If I say Jesus, you picture the manger, the shores of Galilee, the city of Jerusalem, the cross, or the garden. Each of these type scenes gives us a mood. They set expectation based on what has happened there before and whom did things there before. When Solomon is promised a huge and powerful family and God's own presence in the temple, how can we not think of Eden? It's positive vibes. But then when Solomon starts enslaving people to make his palace and his country great, how can we not think of Egypt? Negative vibes. When Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, how can we not think of Jesus and expect Paul's death? This is how the narratives work to show us Meaning. 
Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, we'll look at some simple guidelines to help us get the most out of reading Bible stories. 